0: Tonight, I'm looking at Job 28, and I'm calling it the place of wisdom. Um, Now, during the days of COVID, I've really turned to audiobooks, and I've discovered the beauty of audiobooks. I find that I really enjoy listening more than reading. I get really tired, but if I'm listening, I can listen to a far more, and I can get more out of it and be caught by surprise sometimes in ways that I wasn't by an image when I read. Well, I, re- I was listening to Job, the book of Job, um, and in, I, s- I sat there and I, I heard it in two sittings. You could hear in one sitting, but it, it's quite heavy and dark. If You're probably familiar with the story of Job, but it's a man who was righteous and that God considers him righteous. So much so that the devil says, well, he's only righteous because he hasn't had to endure suffering. And so the devil wants to prove that Job is not a righteous man and wants to inflict pain and suffering. And ultimately, God allows it. And Job loses his family, his land, his fortune. And yet he does not turn on God. But it does cause him as a righteous man to question the ways of God. Well, enters three friends. And the three friends sit with him for seven days. They comfort him. But then after seven days, they just can't sit still anymore. If you sat still with anyone suffering or tragedy, it's hard to sit still and not say something. Mm -hmm. But when they open their mouths, they remove a lot of wisdom that they had in being quiet. Mm -hmm. And so they start having arguments about why Job would suffer. Either he's not truly righteous or God can just do what he pleases. Job isn't satisfied with those answers, and in the end, we find that God is not satisfied with those answers either. But while I was listening into the heaviness and the darkness and just listening through this kind of storm of activity and debate, heavy topics, there was this chapter that just opened up, and it seemed so different from the rest of it that it started just having these poetic reflections about minors and on wisdom, and it came to a completion, and then the story seemed to continue. So that really piqued my interest, and I wanted to turn to that chapter, and I looked at it, and that's the chapter that we'll be looking at tonight. Um, so you'll see what this chapter is about, but basically it's looking about where is wisdom among the living? Where are we to find wisdom? And it's this calm, calm, Cool, collected reflection in the midst midst of heated arguments. And so it gives us a moment to to, um, listen. It's interesting to have more people on the screen than there is in the room. So I'm going to be looking at my screen, which is actually engaging community more than I am with real people around me. That's strange if you think about it. Usually when you're looking at your iPhone, you're avoiding community. (laughs) But in this one, I'm actually engaging more. Okay, so let me read the passage, uh, and then I'll say a bit about it. But it's a poem that is broken into three sections with two refrains. So you can see it on your screen. What I've done is I've broken the three parts into normal font, and then the two refrains in italics. And then it will make it clear that this is a poem written by the author of Job. And this is what it um, reads, and this is from uh, the ESV. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires and it dust, it has dust of gold that path no bird of prey knows and the falcon's eye has not seen it the proud beasts have not trodden it the lion has not passed over it man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots he cuts out channels in the rocks and his eye sees every precious thing he dams up the streams so that they do not trickle and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of a fir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where, then, does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Okay, so that is the passage of Job 28. And it's, it's a very poetic form. It's very beautiful. And you kind of ask, well, what's that about? Well, hopefully I can explain what's that about. Um, so it's broken into three strophes, uh, too bad Liz isn't in the room at this moment. Uh, but, but basically three major sections reflecting on different aspects. The first is looking at human ingenuity or human research. The second is reflecting on, uh, human wealth or the, or what humans value. And then the third is that God is the source of wisdom. And broken in between those two are two refrains. Where's their wisdom? Where's their understanding? And there are similarities between those two refrains, almost like a song, a reflection. Uh, and so this really looks much like a wisdom psalm. Uh, wisdom had its own genre. And so throughout the book of Psalms, you'll find many psalms that are reflecting on nature and on mystery. And those are wisdom psalms, often looking at God, not in his redemption, but looking more so at God as creator. And that's exactly what we have here in the midst of Job 28. What it seems is that I take the opinion, as some do, that this seems to be the narrator of Job, who is inserting this in the midst of the arguments and having a moment of calm before it continues on, uh, and then to end with God's... uh, declarations so I want to look at these in turn and and see how the argument is developed within this poem and I believe what we'll see is that uh, it gives us a lot of reflection on the value of what it means to be human and where humans might come to understand themselves and the world around them and so I'll be interesting interested to hear what you have to say so in this first section, we have a, an emphasis on human ingenuity. You have this image that's very rare in ancient texts, is reflections on what it would have been like to mine. What the, and so you can imagine these people going into the mines, not with these big machines and the claws and dynamite. But rather, it probably would have been pickaxes, wooden ladders, and firelight. And yet they're able to go, they put an end to darkness, they search out of the farthest limit, they go into the deep darkness to find ore, and gold, um, and copper, and iron. Uh, it's amazing that, they, that they're in the midst of this swinging to and fro, And the people above, on the grass, on the meadows, the farmers, the travelers, they have no idea of the activity that is below them. All this activity that is underneath. And uh, it's even, you don't even have animals, have any clue what's happening below because no animal in their right mind would go down below. But they're also, they don't have the ingenuity to go below. So no bird of prey knows. The falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Mm -hmm. And then you have this where, uh, and it says man puts his hand to the flinty rock." So just right here, a little clarification. The ESV often will translate human as man because that would have been the Hebrew or the Greek word here, Hebrew, uh, where in English, Uh, we used to have in English the capability of saying man for humankind or a human person. That's what is meant here. Uh, It is a bit of, uh, I like this translation in other ways, but that I feel is um, a bit frustrating. So uh, if you prefer another version, that's fine. But you have this human person who is Unlike the animals, not just like our chickens outside, just scratching away, looking for worms. These people are taking rock that seems impossible to penetrate and that they're able to overturn it, to cut it out, to stop the waters in order to bring out hidden things to light. So what you see, you know, today people almost diminish the importance or value of human beings as if human beings are nothing but, but, animals. They're no more than animals. They are to be prodded and treated as animals. We use and treat ourselves and just think that we should just approach our desires or our, um, as our needs and that we treat our own bodies as no more than animals. Um, and there is, there's something true that we in our bodies have very much needs like animals. We birth like animals, we eat like animals, we store like animals, we strategize like animals. animals. And yet, this poem right here is saying, not, we're just not of different degree, we're, it, we're so much more so that we are of a different kind, that humans are of inestimable value, that we're amazing. And that we can't dismiss the greatness of what it means to be human. So if you're a human being able to understand me right now, and even if you weren't able to understand me right now, (laughs) but as a human being, you are precious and valuable. And there's an amazing insight to see that we have that much power in the world that is not reflected on enough. That even the lowest person can have this enormous value to society and to one another, by simply existing. Mm -hmm. And and how much we can do when healthy. Um, And we use our ingenuity, you know, it says, necessity is the mother of invention. So whenever you have, whenever things becomes necessary and you have no way around it, it's amazing how humans can adapt Mm -hmm. and invent. Mm -hmm. And what's also amazing about this passage is that there's not one tone of exploitation it's not talking about the injustices of what it means to be human Um, it's not talking about these people going into the mines and exploiting the earth for its riches Um, this does not view humanity as a virus to nature or a virus to creation now There are times when we need to express concern for the earth. The Bible does it again and again. God calls his people to recognize Sabbath rest. uh, To make sure that they don't over harvest the field so that the poor may thresh it. Don't overwork the land. Don't even overwork your animals. Don't overwork your servants. So there's a high view of creation. As alongside a high view of humanity as God's creatures. But here is the view that it's just amazing to be human and what they can do on the earth and in the earth. Um, And that humans are able to look at the earth, look at the world around us and draw out its treasures. I mean, it's not only to draw out the treasure of diamonds and ore and copper, but even being able to harvest crops or even create music Um, as one theologian said is that earth has plenty of potential and imagine a world where there is not a thought of God, where there's not an acknowledgement of a creator and that that world becomes more of an empty resource than it does of one full of the riches of God's creativity. So just the orientation here of this author is that they recognize this human greatness looking for the potential that God has given humanity to unearth these treasures. That's the picture here of this grandeur of being human. Um, Then we turn to our refrain, but where shall wisdom be found? Where's the place of understanding man does not know its worth and it is not found in the land of the living. It's interesting that for all this greatness, the minor note comes into the symphony that they lack wisdom. Now, before I continue going, what is wisdom? Uh, I think the easiest and simplest explanation for us. uh, Now, I think the easiest maybe synonym would be meaning. But where shall meaning be found? Where should coherence be found. So the word wisdom is looking at all the parts of the world and seeing how it is a comprehensive whole to understand its purpose. That's close to what we mean by the word meaning. What is the meaning of it all? What is the purpose? What is the true value of life and what we do? So so it's interesting that humans, as great as they can be, they lack, they lack the ability to find wisdom. They can unearth, bring out these hidden things uh, and bring them to light. They can deep, go search in the deep darkness, but they can't find wisdom. For all their ingenuity, for all their grandeur, they cannot find that most precious thing, wisdom, meaning, value, on their own. Now, it's the second uh, part uh, in the second strophe where it talks about human wealth or human value. So in the first one, we had human ingenuity um, of their mining. The second is the refrain, but where's wisdom? And now it's looking at human wealth. This is surprising. So this is a surprising section because... Humans don't know how to value wisdom and yet they know how to value all the things that they have found. They have gold, they have silver, even the gold of a fear, onyx, sapphire, gold, glass. Glass was very valuable in the ancient world. Uh, I was just telling Julia the other day, can you imagine that most people lived without windows in their house, if not all? Glass was a rare, precious thing. Um, and of coral and crystal, the topaz of Ethiopia, they, they have this amazing ability to know how to value the things that they mine from the earth. And not only that, they orient their whole life um, and risk their lives around it. So the men would go into the mines, risk uh, black lungs, uh, death, sure death, and wives um, and children would support this because what could be found would be amazing. You you also have that in the the time of the ships, uh, the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries where people went on vast journeys, Magellan and Columbus and others to look for untold fortunes in other places and they would be away for four or five years. And somehow society And these families deemed it as valuable enough to do so, to to take a chance, risk your own life in order that you might gain this valuable thing. Uh, And all of societies build around it. And yet, they can bring out the the precious gems from the darkness, but they cannot peer into the hidden hidden crevices of meaning. Mm -hmm. They cannot... Peer behind the curtain of true wisdom, of what makes it valuable. And so you look at the many things that they value, the gold of Ephir, the topaz of Ethiopia. uh, It just, you see that societies had even this, the rumors across the world of, oh, have you seen the gold from Ephir? This isn't the old, the normal gold. This is special gold. Uh, Oh, this isn't any topaz, it's the topaz of Ethiopia. So here, you even hear the currency of value globally in this section. Uh, Of Ophir is a place, um, the gold of this area. So you might think, you know, in our house, I think of the vanilla of Mexico. It's a precious resource in our house. We love to use it. You might think of the spices of India or the furniture of China. That was a joke, by the way, the last (laughs) one. Because we get lots of it, right? (laughs) Um, And we imagine how many billions of dollars we spend to go into space. To put one foot of humankind on the moon, we'll spend billions of dollars to do that. Uh, That we, that uh, the Elon Musk will fly a car into space to see if he can do it. Uh, You have Peter Thiel, the guy who's investing millions and millions of dollars into people to create new technologies. You just think of the millions and billions and trillions of dollars invested in all these things. Um, And we say, is it worth it? Society, we say, yes. It's worth spending millions and billions of our dollars to see if we can put someone on Mars. But for all this money, No matter how, if you collect it all together, it cannot buy wisdom. Our whole societies will orient itself around these valuable things, but none of their value can purchase wisdom. Now, the items that are listed here in Job 28 are not to be considered vain or uh, a waste. Uh, Now, elsewhere in the Bible, you would see that money um, is the root of all kinds of evil. We see that in many places and many stories where money can create a lot of jealousy, greed, avarice in us and in others. But that's not what is being said here. Just as the author was not uh, diminishing human inventure and ingenuity, It's not diminishing that humans value these things. Uh, There's no problem with valuing these fine things. Um, The point here is that we are able to deem them as valuable. That we are able to value things. That something can be deemed as valuable enough to risk our lives for it to risk our family support for it, to risk our whole social um, order for it. Now, it's an interesting question about how do we end up valuing some things? You know, diamonds are actually very plentiful. I, I knew a friend who was a volcanologist. He studied volcanoes and he looked at the creation of diamonds in certain areas and he knew how to find lots of diamonds. And he would go on to these mining expeditions and say, dig here, dig there. And they would go and find lots of diamonds. Mm -hmm. And yet diamonds are considered something very valuable. Uh, How do we value diamonds to be valuable when they're so plentiful? Now, we could come up with lots of reasons, perhaps, um, uh, more cynically or more positively. But that's not the point. The point here is that humans are able to create value, that they do Value and that we order our lives around what we value. Um, And so the point is that humanity can value, that is capable. In spite, though, of its ability to value things, it doesn't know how to value wisdom. It doesn't know how to value it. It can value the gems from the ground, but doesn't know where. Wisdom is found and doesn't know how to value it. So we have the second refrain come in. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say we have heard rumor of it with our ears. So earlier you had the deep and the sea say it is not in us. It is not with us. Abaddon and death say, Abaddon, the place of death, and death itself says, we've heard rumor of it, but it's not here. Um, And so just as wisdom cannot be found in the primordial forces of chaos, as with the deep and the sea, uh, the same words used for the deep and the sea are the same Hebrew words, tiham and yam, are in Genesis 1, where it says God broods over the deep. And brings order to the sea. In those primordial force. It says wisdom is not in us. You can. You know we look back at you know the big bang. And we try to get what caused it. What was at the beginning. What ignited the explosion. If that theory holds correct. We try to get behind it. Or we try to get behind the primordial soup. Through the mythologies. What is in the early and here it says, "But wisdom is not with us. You can't discover the truth of meaning from us." And we have a bad end in death, the end of life, the end of things. And in, in the realm of the dead, and the death itself says, the, these two elemental forces that shape so much of society says, "We've only heard rumor of it. It's not with us either." and we see it hidden from the eyes of the living. No one can see it, we are blinded to it. <clears throat> and so what the author is saying is that you can search, humans can search the whole world over and has searched the whole world over, over time and has not found wisdom as a possession of its own. Uh, it's interesting that uh, first that you see that What is being spoken here thousands of years ago, many think Job is perhaps one of the oldest stories that we have in the Old Testament, that from what we see of humanity from the very beginning, mining practices are very different from us, valuable goods that are very different from us, and yet the human condition is very similar, that they don't know where wisdom is found. And so you see today, people still looking for wisdom, looking for happiness, looking for meaning, the fullness of life. Um, As I mentioned, there is a recent fervor for trying to understand ancient mythologies as a way of understanding life. Jordan Peterson uh, would have been one, Carl Jung was another. Uh, You have, uh, perhaps you, I click on uh, the news online, and it talks about a forgotten culture with its forgotten rituals that might give us a glimpse into the happiness of life, giving us a meaningful life, uh, a new secular approach. Um, this guy named uh, Hubert Dreyfus and Sean Kelly wrote a book called All Things Shining. And it was a desire, which was called atheism 2.0 at the time, This was post new atheism. And it was a desire to find meaning because new atheism seemed to eradicate and erode any sense of meaning. It was, you have to have courage to see that it's meaningless. But atheism 2.0 says, no, we don't need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's look back to the classics, human classics and mine it for truth. Alan de Baton says that we need to read Anna Karenina, not as um, uh, a, novel, a novel of a particular type, but what, it might, what we might learn from the effects of adultery on generations. And so, Alan de Botton said, we can look at classic literature to figure out how to live meaningful lives. And Hubert Dreyfus and Sean Kelly did, wanted to do the same in All Things Shining. How might we look? But what they discover, and you read their books, is fragments Sheer fragments of a good thought. Nothing that is comprehensive. Some people look to philosophies. They pour through different philosophies um, to try to discover what might give me a meaningful life. And then others turn to scientific discoveries, technological advancements. In all this, we're looking for happiness, meaning, and purpose. But all we find are fragments and never the complete picture. We're never given the whole picture. Um, And this is what we have in this poem so far. But does it lead toward agnosticism? Is this a reflection on, well, just shrug our shoulders and say, we don't know, let's just do the best we can. Um, I believe that this poem works on irony to point us in a different direction there's an irony at work in this because wisdom has been there all along. You know, the irony uh, as I go back in the first section, it says that man puts an end to darkness, that sounds like comes to light, searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. Um, So they use all their ingenuity to look for ore. Uh, And so it's almost this image of someone looking for wisdom, but finding or. Or you have that uh, wonderful poetic expression in verse 11, the thing that is hidden, he brings out to light. So there's an irony here is that human ingenuity and human value that human humans are um, have grandeur that humanity lives and assigns value, orient society around what it values. And I believe that humanity betrays itself by showing that what they're doing is living off a of value borrowed. Uh, for example, you have in Western, modern Western society, uh, you have the sense that every human being has dignity. And yet this is a value that cannot be found through research and scientific investigation. It is found only in scripture, uh, most fully formed um, and is taken as a statement of fact because God has revealed that humans have dignity. And so our whole culture is formed around the notion that humans have dignity, individuals have dignity, and yet they do not look to God, the creator, for that value. They're just living off its value without looking for its source, and so what you have here is humanity betraying that it's living off a value that is borrowed, not discovered or created in and by themselves. You have the same here in Roman um, in Romans chapter one, which I'll read. Paul reflects the same thing in verses 19 through 21, um, 22, verse 8, uh the first part of 22. And so Paul writes in his letter to the Romans, chapter one, verse, starting at verse 19. People know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they know God. They knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. So this is the sense of where the author of Job is taking us, that for the We have this understanding that humans have grandeur and that they can value things. And yet, where is the source? And we have this source and yet we just use it as a borrowed thing and not look for its true source that prepares us for the third and final section. And it begins that third section. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. Um, Now, it's not that God is looking for a particular place that he goes, oh, it's actually in this place. It's in this country. It's in this ritual. Rather, in verse 24, it says, and God looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. God looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. What you see here is that God is not looking in creation for meaning as we do, but God sees everything. He sees the whole picture. God sees it comprehensively and coherently because he's the one who created it. God sees all things. Um, Now, we don't have this God's eye view, uh, but God has this God's eye view. He knows where wisdom lies because he created all things. He even sees over the deep, over the sea over Abaddon and over death. God is all in all. Mm -hmm. And it says in this wonderful expression in verses 25 through 26, that he measures and weighs a thunderstorm. He gave wind its weight, apportioned the waters by measure. When he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. It's amazing that he has this ability to give you the value of a thunderstorm in its beneficence and in its destruction. There is nothing outside of him knowing its exact value and its exact purpose. And even out of this chaos, he can form order as he did over the deep and over the sea. Now, we could end here um as some would like and if we did we could end with the god of the philosophers i don't know if you've heard this expression there's the god of the pascal talks about the god of the philosophers versus the god of abraham isaac and jacob and one is a god uh, that reveals and there's a god that is an idea The God of philosophers is really the best of human thought to the nth degree. God is love. Well, what is love? Imagine human love and turn it to 11. Take it to its nth degree. Take the best thoughts of humanity and turn it to its nth degree. And that is the God of the philosophers. But that is not the God of the Bible. Um, Because that would make God into our image, rather than us being made in God's image. And in verse 28, the God of the philosophers is obliterated. And he said to man, and he said to humanity. In that simple line, rather than a collection of human wisdom, God speaks. And what does he say in the final verse? Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Now, later on, we're going to hear this, that we find that this is just the tip of the iceberg. God is not going to give us one verse. There's going to be three chapters of God talking, or four chapters. Uh, Job 38 through 41. He He speaks extensively of his creative power and his might and his sovereignty over space and time. Um, Now, before we look at this specific passage, I want to, to say that this is the difference between the God of the philosophers and the God of the Bible, that when God speaks, we discover something, that God is not a great brain, the great idea, but that he's a morally perfect being. And that, lo and behold, we are accountable to him. So when God speaks, it thunders. Let me turn to Psalm 29. Uh, And you see that here in Job, God is measuring and giving weight and value to the thunderstorm. But it's a reflection on God's voice. The preparation for God speaking. Uh, Let me just read verses 7 through 9, even though Psalm 29 in its whole would be appropriate. In verse 7, the voice of the Lord strikes with bolts of lightning. The voice of the Lord makes the barren wilderness quake. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists mighty oaks and strips the forest bare. In his temple, everyone shouts glory. Um, And so when God speaks, it thunders. When he spoke to Moses and delivered his law, the people heard it thunder. When the father spoke to Jesus, people heard it thunder. When God speaks, it thunders because he is morally perfect. And we are frightened when he speaks. I've heard of people say, uh, when I'm reading the Bible, sometimes I feel that God is shouting clearly to me. When God speaks, God thunders or it thunders. So what are we then to do with this God who speaks, who is not like the God of the philosophers? Well, when God speaks, God gives us his direction. And that's what we have at the final line in this chapter in verse 28 and we're given the key to this whole passage behold the fear of the lord that is wisdom and to turn away from evil is understanding now this is the key Um, and i want to look at this uh, because these are parallel expressions to fear the lord to turn away from evil wisdom understanding They're parallel forms. The Hebrew people always have parallel forms, almost like a repetition. But they repeated in slight variations to give a new meaning. And, you know, I see in this um, and what would be true for wisdom as a whole, that this speaks of what Francis Schaeffer would say, we need to bend our knees twice. We need to bend our knee before God Um, our creator. We need to bend our knees as creatures before the creator. And we need, we need to bend our knees as sinners before a holy God. So it's not just to bend the knee as a creature is enough. We also must bend the knee as sinners in need of mercy. And I believe that this passage here is pointing to both, um, both postures to bend the knee as a creature and to bend the knee as a sinner. Can you, yeah, just like what? Well, where are you going to go into what that means? Yes, I am. I'm going to go into that. So in Psalm eight, so I'm going to look at the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom, which I really see is that first bending of the knee as a creature before the Creator. Um, you know, when we think of, of fearing God. We might think of someone who's angry at us, an abusive parent, someone that's just going to torture and torment us. But the fear of the Lord is not simply quaking. Quaking is an appropriate response. Falling on our face is appropriate response, but it means so much more. It's like the fear, I compare it sometimes, the fear that we have when we uh, when look at the ocean. If you don't fear the ocean, you don't respect it, you don't revere it, you're in trouble. You're gonna be swept away by it. There was a a singer, Jeff Buckley, uh, a famous singer, and he died in Memphis, Tennessee. And he died where we often would hang out uh, near Mud Island. Um, This was where this Air Force used to fly in, but it's just this island, and now it's kind of where concerts are, and some people hang out on the banks of the Mississippi and the Mississippi is real long and wide and brown and just rolls very slowly. Well, Jeff Buckley did not know that he was to fear the Mississippi. They call it the mighty Mississippi. And so he had some drinks and went swimming and was found three miles down the river, dead along the shore. Because the undercurrents of the Mississippi is are severe. It's actually multiple currents where most divers cannot get to the bottom, even though it looks like a slow, lazy river. And so it's important to fear the Mississippi in order to appreciate its grandeur. That is like the fear of the Lord. We need to revere him for who he is. Um, I remember, um, I I, I even remember, I I thought about this as, I went to go see the Sears Tower in Chicago. And I was standing on the sidewalk and I decided that I was just going to look up um, at the Sears Tower by leaning my head backwards and looking up at the Sears Tower, which is one of the tallest buildings in the world. And I looked up and I almost, I, my knees went weak. And I went, as queasy because it was just so enormous. And it, it terrified me. Uh, but it was, it wasn't a fear that I didn't want to have. It was a fear that spoke of a depth and a dimension that was beyond me. It reminded me of my finitude, of my sheer creatureliness. And that's the fear of the Lord, to remind ourselves that we are but creatures. And yet, uh, in Psalm 8, uh, this reflection of the fear of the Lord leads this person to reflect on the grandeur of what it means to be human in our finitude. And so I'll read a bit of Psalm 8, verse starting in verse 3. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place. So imagine as I'm looking at the Sears Tower, I'm looking at something created. So this psalmist is looking at the grandeur of space. And I don't know if you've ever looked at the grandeur of space and felt a bit queasy. And uh, the author continues. What are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? Yet you made them only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims in the ocean currents. Oh, Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. And so the sphere of the Lord is a reflection of who we are as creatures bending our knees before the creator, the mighty and awesome creator. That is a beginning of wisdom. It's starting to understand our place in the world as as small and yet crowned with glory and honor. And yet, we cannot just bend the knee as creatures. Um, we have amazing power. We're amazingly ingenious. Uh, ingenious. Uh, and yet, we discover that this, all this ingenuity and power has a responsibility. A responsibility that we have failed. We have used all that power to exploit We can make medicine, but we also make AK-47s. We create the computer and yet create the atomic bomb. Uh, Francis Schaeffer spoke of this as humans as glorious ruins. And he gets this image from John Calvin, who would walk along the French countryside and see these castles. And these castles would be huge and Massive and gorgeous, and yet much of it would have crumbled because of disuse and misuse. And Calvin saw that that is what the human is like. They have all this glory. You can see the glory of what they're meant to be, and yet they're crumbling all around the edges. They're crumbling on the inside from misuse, neglect, and um, and so uh, and of sin. And so, this second bending of the knee is not only do we fear the Lord as creatures, but we are to turn away from evil. We are to bend our knees as sinners before a holy God, before a holy Creator. Um, It's at that time, then, we, we not only just see the grandeur, but we also see the easiness of frailty, of folly, and of destruction. That if we don't bend our knees as recognizing the failure of using power appropriately, um, then we will bring further destruction about. But when we recognize that we have sinned, have fallen short of the glory of God, then we are then we come to understand that we are in need of God's mercy. We are in need of God's holy mercy. And so We see both knees being bent, one as a creature to fear the Lord, that is wisdom, and to bend the knee as a sinner to turn away from evil is understanding. And yet, um, and so to to fear the Lord and to turn away from evil is to turn toward God, is to turn toward God, the God who speaks. And he said to man, he said to humanity. So when we turn away from evil, we turn to the God who speaks. We look to his word. So in conclusion, um, you see that this passage is unusual in Job. It's it's complete. So many other passages in Job ends with uh, a trailing thought, uh, Flared accusation. um, Despondency. And yet here. There's a calm in the midst of the storm. You're listening to Job. And it's dark and heavy. And it's a tempest. And then the eye of the storm is calm. Job 28 is in the calm. In the middle. Um, It's a place where we can collect ourselves. And... uh, and what we find is that what is true in the calm is what is true in the storm. That we are dependent, wholly dependent on the God who created us, who watches over us, and the God who speaks, as God ultimately will do in Job 38 through 41. So Christianity is thoroughly based, not on human wisdom, but based on revelation, on God speaking. And in light of that, we see ourselves clearly. We value ourselves clearly. So we cannot build ourselves up from human wisdom like a tower of Babel, but we need God to come down to give us his, his word. And that is ultimately what he does in Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus Christ who comes as the word become flesh. And it's in him that he speaks the words of everlasting life. And it's in him that we receive the mercy we need as sinners to be able to know the beginning of wisdom, the knowledge of what it means to live before him as our creator and redeemer.